Well, good morning, Genesis House. Let's stand and read together Psalm 1, 1 to 6. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Lord, we are grateful to you for your word, and we look forward to diving in. Many of us in here today are obviously because we're different individuals at different places in our life um, in terms of our walk with you. Um, neither good nor bad, just what it is in terms of just relating to you, Lord, and just uh, like it is in any relationship, we have our, our close moments, our intimate moments, and our times of distance. So wherever we're at in our relationship with you, I pray your spirit will bring us back into strong relationship. And we pray that we look for a closeness with you and a, and a friendship with you that we didn't have when we at least we didn't feel when we first walked in these doors. I pray, God, for a, a time in your word that is um, honoring to you and a time that's encouraging to the members here. So we look forward to what you have to say to us. Well, many of you know Dan Schroeder. Many of you know Dan. And there's many great things we can say about Dan. But one of my favorite things about Dan is the way he addresses me whenever I see him in public. The first thing he does is he gives me a hug. It says, great to see you. But the second thing almost always he asks me is, tell me in which, Andrew, how the Lord has blessed you today. Yeah. <laughs> now, sometimes he says, give me one thing you're grateful for the Lord has blessed you. But sometimes he'll say, tell me three things. And then he really puts you on your spot because <laughs> you've got to really think about the way the Lord has blessed you. But it's a great question because often, um, you know, when I see him, like, I may not always be in the best emotional state or in the right headspace, and so his question forces me to get out of my own pessimistic mind and take my focus off myself and think about how good God is and, and think about uh, him with a thankful heart. And it's a, it's a fantastic uh, question that he asks. But his question also assumes something. His question assumes that God has blessed me. Right? This is a question that assumes he's blessed me. And it got me thinking, well, how do I really know if I'm blessed by God? What's my measuring stick for whether he's blessed me or not? Does God arbitrarily hand blessings out to people? Like, like uh, you know, here's one for you, here's one for you. Or do I have a role, a part to play in whether I'm blessed by him or not? What does blessing even mean anyway? All these questions come to mind. And they're interesting questions because in the Christian circles, we throw around that word like it's a football. Right? How many times have you been the recipient of this or the giver of this when you, when you interact with people? Someone comes to you and shares an issue with you and they speak about you. And you, at the end of it, you say, you know what? I pray that the Lord blesses you over the, in this time as you, as you work through this thing. Right? We use that word and the person accepts it never thinks anything of the word. We say it as if it's like a football. We just toss it and we don't maybe necessarily think about what we mean by that. What if you want something for yourself or you, and you have an issue you're working through and you say, man, I sure wish the Lord would bless me in this today or over this time period. Even when we sneeze, we say, God bless you. <laughs> right? I don't even know why we say that. Maybe, maybe some of you do, but we just you throw the word blessing around like it's a football. 
Well, today's sermon is all about what a blessed person looks like. And what's interesting about today's passage is receiving God, uh, rece- about receiving God's blessing, and it's not arbitrary. We're going to learn here, it's not arbitrary. He's not standing in heaven going, I'm going to give one to Shelley, one to Blake, one to Sheldon. You know, he's not in this, I'm going to give him this and this measure and so on. He's not doing that. We're going to find out here that being blessed by God is highly dependent on how we choose to live. How we choose to live. And the psalmist lays out two areas, two areas that we have to consider as Christians. One, being blessed by God is really dependent about who we hang out with. The friends we choose and the counsel we sit under and the, and the kind of life we live and the, who we hang out with, who, the, who, who influences us, very much is dependent on whether God blesses us. The second thing we're going to see is that our devotion to God's word is going to be key in our blessing. So two areas, who we hang out with and two, where the word of God fits in our lives. And if you're taking notes today, this will suit the logical analytical people in the church. I've laid out the sermon this way. The blessed man. Here's what he doesn't do. Or sorry, there's four categories. What he doesn't do, verse 1. What he does do, verse 2. What he is like, verse 3. And what his final outcome is, verse 6. I'll turn back to that for you in a second. And here's what the wicked man is. What he is like in verse 4. And what his final outcome will be in verse 5 and 6. So let's dive in now. And let's look at the blessed man in terms of what he does not do. What does he not do? Verse 1, part A. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. This man or woman does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. In order to understand what this means, we need to define who the wicked are. Now in our culture, uh, wicked has an interesting word, or it is an interesting word, because we use that in a positive and a negative context, right? Uh, especially with the youth, right? If you see um, a guy, like, do something really cool in sports, you go, man, that was sure wicked, right? What are you saying? You're saying that was a cool move, or that was an awesome play, right? I know Blake drives a scooter. I know what would happen if he showed up to school in a scooter and he put a turbocharger in the back of that thing <laughs> so he could go 30 kilometers an hour. <laughs> Uh, his friends would be like, oh, cool, that's such a wicked turbocharger, Blake, right? That's probably what they'd say, right? But so we use it in a positive way. But we also know that the traditional word is usually used in the wicked, or in a wicked sense, in a negative sense, right? It usually, we think of it as something to do with being evil or, or heinous behavior, right? That's wicked. And we have to, all you have to do is watch the news and we would say, yeah, that's a wicked crime and this is a wicked thing and so on and so forth. What's interesting is the Bible actually defines wicked very much in that way as well, in the evil sense, in which you think of like things like murder and like you know rape and this like really heinous crimes, and and we we understand the Bible understands those things as being <coughs> wicked just like we would, but just to lump that definition into that understanding from the scripture's point of view is not a fair definition. The Bible understands wickedness in being more than just what we'd consider hugely evil outward action. I'll give you some some passages to consider. Psalm 10, verse 3, says this. 
For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire, and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. Hmm, interesting. He talks about wicked people being proud, arrogant, and greedy. Psalm 37, 21. The wicked borrows and does not pay back. You know that Canada is second in the world, second in the world in national household debt to Greece. Second in the world to Greece in national household debt. We spend $1.6 for every dollar earned. So the guy that brings in 100 grand for a salary spends 160,000 that same year to basically maintain that salary or to maintain that lifestyle. 1.6 to 1 ratio. Canada as a nation are wicked by the way they handle the finances. Matthew 18 says people who don't forgive others are considered wicked people. Unforgiveness. Second, Second Thessalonians 3.2 Those who reject the truth of the gospel message are considered wicked. See, it's not just outward action according to scripture that makes someone wicked or not. It's the inward attitudes and their thought lives that are associated with, with this definition as well. Now when we take this all into consideration, we can define a wicked person according to Psalm 1 in this way. It's someone who chooses to live in contrast to God's way of life. A wicked person is simply someone who chooses to live in contrast to God's way of life. With this understanding now, let's go back to the passage and remember what the blessed man doesn't do. He doesn't sit, or sorry, he doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. In other words, the blessed man rejects any counsel that is not in line with God's word or God's way. The blessed man rejects any counsel, does not walk in any counsel that is in line with God's way. Now that sounds easy, but it's tough to do. It's tough to do. Right? We live in a world where Christianity is totally being marginalized. The majority of the world believes that abortion is right. The majority of the world believes that common law relationships are the way to go. The world believes that you need to test the car before you buy it in terms of your sexuality, right? We embrace homosexual behavior. Again, we love homosexual people as Christians, but we don't embrace the behavior. No different than we love people who gossip, but we don't embrace gossiping. It's the same kind of thing. We, we live in a culture where if you're not happy in your marriage, you have the right to get out. Because if you don't feel the quote-unquote love anymore, just <coughs> ditch the relationship. We live in a culture that believes that we shouldn't discipline our kids. We live in a culture that you can hide under, you can do cash under the table transactions at work. We live in a culture that looks for loopholes that are illegal in terms of hiding taxes from Revenue Canada. We live in a culture that loves to gossip, holds on to unforgiveness, and believes that all religion is the same. That's the culture we live in. And all of this is wicked because it does not line up with God's way. And God says, the psalmist says, Don't be, a blessed person does not walk in this type of counsel. Now here's what's interesting. Why would the psalmist tell us not to do this? Well, think about the word counsel. The word counsel means to... If you, someone counsels you, they give you opinions and instruction for how to live your life out. So in the initial stage of counseling, there's no behavior being exhibited, right? All you're doing is listening. 
So if you walk into somebody to handle an issue, you're listening to how they think you should handle the situation. You haven't acted yet, you're listening. That's all you're doing. But here's the thing, that the behaviors we exhibit do not come out of a vacuum. It's not out of nowhere. It all starts in the mind. Every behavior that we do at one point had to be mulled through in your mind. So ungodly counsel, therefore, affects the way we think. And if we get ungodly counsel that affects our mind, that's where the seeds are planted that ultimately leads to our behavior. So ungodly counsel sets the table for us to want to, to, to live in a way that God is not proud of. So if we, we, we reject walking in the counsel of the wicked who don't believe that God's truth is correct, then we, don't, we set up ourselves for the opportunity to live righteous lives that God would be proud of. That's what a blessed man does. So what else does a blessed man not do? And we read the second part here. The blessed man does not stand in the path of sinners. Does not stand in the path of sinners. Standing here is linked to behavior. Or it's linked to identifying with someone and their way of life, right? I'll never forget, like, maybe I'm going to, this will be deja vu for some of you. Um, because I know smoking is, was really popular uh, maybe 25 years ago. And it sort of lessened its, its sort of popularity in Canada. But I grew up in the Northwest Territories and everybody smoked. Like everybody. If you didn't smoke, you were like a weirdo, even in high school. Um, but I remember uh, during recess times and lunch breaks, my classmates going out in minus 30, 35, 40 weather with their coats like half unzipped, like they'd have no toques, no hat, and smoking and just trembling at the door of the school. And they were standing together. Like they'd be standing in a circle huddling, trying to get warm, and they smoke for 10 minutes, and then they go back in the, into, the, into the school, into our classroom. Well, I remember it gave me this beautiful picture, or sad picture, that when these people were standing together, what are they doing? They're identifying themselves as being smokers. They're identifying and saying, this is our lifestyle. This is the way that we believe life should work and how, what the way we want to express ourselves. And see, he, see, the psalmist says, when you take that picture, he says, a blessed man does not stand in the path of sinners. He doesn't stand in a, in a way in which his lifestyle agrees with the people who are, who are rejecting God's way. And we are known as Christians as people who do not behave like sinners do. Our lives are to be remarkably different. I mean, I've, one of the things I've taken away from John so much in my study with you guys is like I have an absolute, tremendously clear definition of a Christian. Absolutely clear for me. You know, Jesus said over and over through the book of John, if you love me, you'll, keep, you'll obey me. If you love me, you'll obey me. If you love me, you'll obey me. Not, you'll think about obeying me, you'll read your Bible, even though that's important, which we're going to see. But the mark of a Christian is how you live. How you live in accordance with the things you know about God. And it's how, so again, it's how we, we do not walk in the counsel of the wicked, and we do not stand in the path of sinners. As a Christian, our life is defined by how we stand against sin and people who sin against God. But there's one more piece to the conduct of a blessed man here we see in, 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 in uh, the, the third part here. He says, a blessed man, neither does he sit in the seat of scoffers. He does not seat in the seat of scoffers. 
When you think of sitting, it carries this idea of belonging. Like as you're sitting here, you belong in this group to Genesis House. Again, I go back to my high school days, but uh, when I used to sit at lunchtime, everybody in the school, we had only about 200 students in our high school, it was a small school, but everyone would sit in the pockets. They'd sit in their pockets, like, you know, the jocks over here, the drama people over here, <laughs> you know, everybody's painting a picture that you're all too familiar with, right? And then like the kind of like marginalized over here, and it was just like these different groups, but you sat with who you thought you belonged with. And that's how life worked. And so here he says, a blessed man does not sit in the seat of scoffers. It's, this person doesn't feel like they belong in the midst of scoffing. So what's scoffing? Who's a scoffer? Well, the Bible actually defines it this way. It's those who speak with malice. Scoffers are people who speak with malice. Another, malice, another way of saying that is people who are nasty in their speech, who are spiteful. And they're often known as being proud people who gossip and slander a lot, right? People who can't, when you get into a group with them, all they talk about are other people. That's their whole focus of the, is like putting down so-and-so and talking about so-and-so, and their whole time is spent just talking about how, yeah, other people's lives and how they've gone wrong. And here's a key, a person who's blessed does not feel comfortable amongst people like that. They do not feel any sense of belonging. There's no sense of belonging. I remember about two years after I became a Christian, um, I was at a specific house uh, in Calgary, sitting with a group of people, and uh, I remember like the whole conversation, and it was just like completely, there was no substance to it. It was, the, it was gossip, it was slander, it was all about just areas of life that I'd sort of left behind. And I remember going, I just can't wait till this, this evening ends. just can't wait till this evening ends, because... I used to be that person who would lead those kind of conversations, but after being saved, I felt fully uncomfortable in those types of situations because I knew what God's standard for my life was. So I didn't have a sense of belonging anymore, and I just couldn't wait for the evening to end. And that's what he's saying. A blessed man is one who does not want to belong or sit in the midst of people who speak in these kinds of ways. So here's the thing. If we want to be blessed by God, it's very clear from verses one to, uh, verse 1 here that who we hang out with has a big, a big uh, playing factor in how, how much blessing we may receive. Now, I want to put a strong caveat in here, because some of you may be thinking, are you saying, Andrew, I shouldn't have any Christian or non-Christian friends? Is that what you're saying? Are you saying I shouldn't belong to any non-Christian groups like sports teams and things like that or have anybody non-Christian to my house for dinner or go to their house? Not at all. It's not what I'm saying. But here's, here's the two questions that you, I would pose to, to you and myself when I make these considerations in my life. My question then to you is this. What is the purpose, though, behind the relationship? What's the purpose for why you're in that relationship? You see... If you're going into the relationship with the idea that you know that person doesn't know Jesus Christ, and you're building the relationship and hanging out with them for the purpose of looking for spiritual conversations, because you want to share the hope of Christ with them, then that's okay. And you, you mean, I would have no worries with a, con with a friendship like that. Because what you're doing is you're, you're engaging in their conversation, you're building friendship. It might take months, years, whatever. It might take a long, long time. It's not like a week process. It might be five years of a friendship like that. 
But again, you're always looking for opportunities to lead them to Christ. See, that's the purpose in the relationship. You're not looking to hang out just so that they are going to pass all their ways of life down to you and that you're going to just accept them as truth. The other question I have, and this is the most important one, is in that relationship, who's influencing who? Who's influencing who? I think of a ladder analogy, right? You stand on a ladder. Imagine you're painting this wall here, and uh, you know, and or even like a tall ceiling. And you're the Christian, and you're standing at the top of the ladder, and your non-Christian friends at the bottom of the ladder. When you reach out and, and you go grab hands and pull, who's coming? Who, who's going which way? The Christian isn't likely going to pull the unless he's your little kid who's 20 pounds, but of equal size, like and weight. The Christian is never going to pull the non-Christian up the ladder. The non-Christian is going to pull the, the Christian off the ladder. So in these relationships, who's really influencing who here? That's an important question. That's a really important question. And that's something we have to consider in the relationships we're in. What's the purpose behind the relationship? And who's influencing who? A blessed man, a blessed man is going to be one who carefully weighs and considers these things. But we also see that blessing also comes with their devotion to the Word of God. A blessed person will receive those blessings because of the devotion to the Word of God. Look, look at what he does do in verse 2. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Now the law in our context of this passage is the Old Testament, right? The New Testament hasn't been written yet, so when he says the delight of this person is in the law of the Lord, he's talking about the Old Testament. But for us, it's all of Scripture, because we know that the New Testament has equal authority to the Old. We know that. So, so he's speak, in our context, he's saying, a person who's blessed is delighting in the Scriptures, who delights in the Bible, basically. See, a devoted, a, a blessed person loves spending time in the Scriptures. The Scriptures are not laborious. It's not like you're doing laundry, right? It's not like it's homework, and you just, can't, you just hate homework. This, to, the, the, to delight in something is, some, is to participate in activity that brings pleasure and to bring enjoyment into your life. Blessed people love their personal devotion time. They love their group, the small groups they belong to. They love being here on a Sunday. They love the discussion that we have around God's Word afterwards. That's what a, a person, he, he or she delights in the Scriptures. But notice in verse 2 that the blessed man not only delights, but meditates on the Scriptures day and night. Now meditation in our culture is like this trance, right? We think, hmm, I'm meditating and I'm just thinking inward. I don't know, people say things like just think inwardly or I don't know what they say, but it doesn't make sense to me. Um, but they have these trans-like beliefs about meditation like in yoga. But the Bible defines meditation this way. If you look it up, you can find that the, the word means this. It's the act of thoughtful deliberation with the implication of speaking to oneself. Biblical meditation is the, the act of thoughtful deliberation with the implication of speaking to oneself. So here's how it looks. As you read through the scriptures, you're thinking through, you're thoughtfully deliberating over what you're learning. What does this mean? How does it apply to my life? What do I need to change? 
How do I need to treat others? And so on and so forth. And you're speaking to yourself, like within, maybe sometimes out loud or maybe in t- internally in your mind, but you're looking for how this is to shape your life and how it's going to change you. This is what it is to meditate. It's not you creating like these sort of like inward thoughts about how tr- what truth is and how life works. You're relying on an external source, the Word of God, to shape your thinking. So totally different than the meditation that we have today and things like yoga and whatnot. This is not to empty your mind of nothingness. This is to fill your mind with the Word of God and make that your focus of how you think. Now the blessed man also, notice, doesn't do this once a week. He doesn't do this once a month. And doesn't just do this on Sundays when the pastor tells them to open their Bibles to Psalm 1. Notice how often this person does it. He meditates on it day and night. Day and night. This person has a pervasive meditation life over the scriptures. It's a continual thing. Now that doesn't mean you have to open your Bible necessarily and read it day and night. But what you've read that day can be thought about throughout the day. Whether you're driving in your car, having a shower, making dinner, whatever. You can still think through the scriptures even if you don't have to have them in front of you. Because whatever you read that day is now the material for your life. Or something you learned on Sunday something you heard on the radio, or something you learned in small group, and so on. But the key here is that this blessed person not only delights in the scriptures, but thinks through them on a daily basis, and how they apply to their lives and the implications of it. So I I, I can't not ask this question, which is the question Jeff asked, and it's kind of cool because he didn't know I was speaking on this today. But how are we doing? How are we doing? And the question is not to produce shame or guilt or anything. It's just, a, it's just a reality of a question. Because Psalm 1 tells us what it means to be a blessed person. I want to share with you how I used to think about my own devotional life. And how it's changed and the, and the huge difference it made. I used to wrestle with this. Because I would hear, I mean every single pastor. It's like their job to tell you you need to read the Bible. That's kind of like... Like a, it's like a mechanic telling you you need to change your oil regularly and, and do maintenance on your car. That's like their job. Well, you think, well, yeah, you're the pastor. Of course you're going to tell us to read the Bible. So I used to always wrestle these things because other pastors would tell me you need to be in the scriptures. And I used to feel guilty because I kind of was lazy. Off and on, off and on, off and on like a light switch. And I was kind of never really uh, dedicated one way or another. And I was good at speaking Christianese. So when I go into a small group, I knew enough about the Christian lifestyle that I could fake my way through a conversation, and, and other people would carry the conversation, so I was very good at being a chameleon in spiritual conversations. But when push came to shove, I really didn't know really that much. Really. If Christ were to take me in a room one-to-one and say, you open the scriptures and talk to me about them, I'd be like, I have nothing to say to you, God. That's kind of the way the life worked. And I used to feel guilty about this cycle because I was, uh, you know, really struggling because I found the scriptures to be kind of like homework, I guess. But here's how everything changed. And I would suggest if that's your lifestyle that you change this way as well, as one option anyway. When I really understood that God is love, when I really understood that it changed my, my, my understanding of how to approach a Christian life, because love is unconditional, right? And, un- and love is self-sacrificial. So when I understood that God loved me, I would look at him more relationally than I ever had before. And with just like anybody that you love, you want to spend time with that person. You want to spend time with that person. So when I approached the Bible relationally, that changed my devotional life. 
that here's a God of this world who wants to get to know me on a personal level. So instead of trying to study Greek words and Hebrew words and, and try to like, you know, fit into small groups and so on, I just opened the scriptures and read them for pure pleasure for the purpose of building a relationship with God. Some days after 10 minutes or whatever, 20 minutes, half an hour reading, I, I may have virtually nothing to take away. But, but there'll be days when I'd only read one verse and I'd, and I'd be stuck on one verse for 20 minutes in my head. The point is, is that over time, just like it is with friendships you have, have you ever had really good coffees with your friends and other times it was like, ah, well, it was nice to see them, but whether I saw them or not, wouldn't have really changed my friendship that much, right? Or, you know, dates with your, with your wife or your husband, like you go out and some dates are great and some days are just whatever. But it's not, you're not saying that they're not worth it, but you know, you're just saying that there's highs and lows in relationships. There's highs and lows in reading the scriptures. But the point is, if you pre- approach the, the scriptures relationally, it changes the way you view God, and it's actually enjoyable, and He will speak to you through them. Now, reading the NASB is tough because the words are tricky, because it's written more complex, but read the message. Read the New Living Translation. They're very clear. Anybody can understand them. They're clear. Change the translation if you're having a hard time understanding a passage. Or read the same passage in multiple translations to try to get the gist of the words. Use Bible Gateway or anything like that to help you through. As soon as I approach the Bible with, as a relational, and in a relational way, and not in a studious way, my life changed. And to this day, I still do that because, again, as a pastor that has to teach you certain things, I can get locked into teacher mode. Right? I can get locked into that. But in my own personal, personal devotional life, I don't do that. I just read for fun, read for pleasure, and read huge portions of Scripture if necessary until something stand, that God speaks to me through something. Anyway, it's a long tangent, but I thought it's worth saying. <laughs> well, if someone is blessed and, and, and agrees to choose their, their friends wisely, and uh, chooses to approach the scriptures this way, there are promises given to that person. Look at verse 3. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruits in its seasons, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. He prospers. I like these agricultural sort of illustrations here because he gives a picture of something. He talks about like trees being firmly planted and fruit yielding uh, uh, in season with leaves that don't wither. He's painting a picture of health. Health, strength, nourishment, vitality, right? Stability. All these kind of thoughts go through your head when you read these. He's talking about that someone who chooses to live this way in the verse, you know, verses 1 and 2, when he does that, he will have stability, strength, nourishment, vitality in their own lives. But even more so, he says, and whatever he does then, he will prosper. He will prosper. Well, that's an interesting phrase, because if you're like me, your head might automatically go, hmm, I'm thinking health and wealth, prosperity gospel here. You know, if, if you're connected to Jesus, he'll, he'll give you a million dollars, and he'll give you a BMW, and, and all these, you know, these, these fancy houses, and perfect health, and all these kind of things, and just sort of uh, um, gives us like, this idea of like this physical and financial uh, prosperity, but that's not what's the, that's not the way to understand this word here. It's important again to look at the context, and we get a clue from going back to verses one and two. See, the person who's prospering in this context is someone who's chosen their friends wisely, 
and is delighted in the law of the Lord and meditates it daily. If you're delighting in it, and you're meditating on it, and you're choosing to live a certain way, you're going to be always going God's way in your life. If you go God's way in your life, then, then that person will prosper. He prospers because it's in connection to the word of God and the commands given to him. And, and his, his prosperity comes out of the obedience to the word of God in those categories. Now you and I have experienced this in our own lives. We have. In just like you know, uh, in the financial area, uh, again, like when we go God's way with money, uh, we may not be filthy rich, but it, we're n- we're definitely not in trouble. Anybody that goes God's way with finances, I don't know anybody in financial trouble that handles money God's way. None. Um, they might go through tough times, but God will promise always to bring them out of those tough times. In the area of uh, raising kids. Um, again, when we go God's way with raising kids, there is fruit and prosperity that comes out of that. I think of, again, marriage. When we go God's way with marriage, there's fruit and prosperity that comes out of that. Again, it's not, we have perfect marriages. I'm not saying that. We all struggle and have areas. But there is fruit and prosperity in terms of our health of our marriages when we go God's way. The way we work, the way we handle relationships, even health. Even health. We can be prosperous. You know what's interesting? I think I told some of you this, but at the Free Methodist Church Conference, uh, they did a eulogy of, the, of all the people that died in ministry over the last three years. Um, and the Free Methodist Church's um, uh, pension fund has been depleted. And some of the people are raising concerns going, well, like, why are we depleted in the pension? Like, what's going on here? And they're concerned. And the guy that's head of, head of finance stood up and goes, the reason why we're depleted is because all you pastors and your wives live so long. <laughs> so the average, like Laura sent me a statistic about, uh, I don't know, six months ago or something. The average Canadian lives around 80 years old. 80. Do you know what the average pastor and his wife lives to? Average age? Over 90. Uh, the, the average age, we calculated 25 people, or 20, 22 people died this year, 20, or sorry, 22 people died in the Free Methodist Church over three years, 22 people in the ministry and their spouses. There were two women in there that died around the 55, 60 marks, so I guess breast cancer, something like that. Take away, the, even adding those two in, 91 was the average age. If you took out the 50 and 60 year old people, the, most people were 95, 96, couple over 100. So watch this. The average Canadian lives to 80. We are living on average 11 years longer than everybody else. If you retire at 65 and you live to 90, you're getting supported by for 25 years. Some of you aren't even 25 years old that are just around 25. You've been supported by the pension for that long. So there, when he says anything he does, he'll be prosperous, it can relate to health. But why? Because the pastor and his wife are living, hopefully, for the majority, well, actually, I do know. I mean, they are. They're committed to the Lord's work, and they're, they're, they're delighting in the law of the Lord. They're meditating on, the, on, on his word day and night. And, and what's happening, there's, they're, that, that means they're obeying the commands about how to live as Christians, how they eat how they handle themselves sexually, how, whether they take drugs or how much they drink and all these things and it's affecting their, and how, whether they forgive. Forgiveness kills. It kills your body. 
these people are living according to God's way. And what's happening? They're living longer. There's a direct correlation. They're prospering. Because of, but in accordance with their, command, their obedience to the commandments of the Word of God. You know, Dan and I, we've been trying to lead churches that is really focused on discipleship. Really focused on discipleship. And it's amazing to me because I've had many Christian leaders and, and different people come to me and say, what do you and Dan use for your primary material? Like, it, it happens all the time. What's your primary material for the discipleship? And, I, and I, we say the Bible. And they look at us with, like deer in the headlights. And they go, what do you mean the Bible? Like, what, no, what material do you use? The Bible. They, they, people, I'm serious, if you go to, for discipleship, it, it's, a, it's a booklet. It's a, it's a book by some other author, and that's the foundation of discipleship. I'm, I'm not, Dan could answer the exact same way as I am. I have yet, I have yet to meet someone who's not surprised by that answer. Anyway. Let's look at the contrast now of the wicked man in verse 4 and what he's like. The wicked are not so. They are like chaff which the wind drives away. <coughs> they are like chaff which like the wind drives away. Those who know anything about farming know that the chaff is the waste product that comes uh, after the combine separates the seed or the grain from the wheat, right? So a combine drives over a crop of wheat and then it separates the, the kernel out from the chaff. And in the Old Testament, there were no, no combines, so they had to do it by hand. What a combiner does today, the Old Testament did it through um, taking the wheat uh, or, the, or the kernel and the, or the grain in the chaff, putting it in the same basket, and then as they would shake it and throw it into the air, the wind would catch the, the chaff and blow it away, just leaving the seeds. That's how they would do it. They toss it like spaghetti, and, and next thing you know, the chaff blows, and all of a sudden left with the kernel. Well, here he's saying the wicked are like chaff. You see, the chaff is to be understood here as that which is worthless, that which is sort of like the waste product, the garbage. And this is what he's saying. Unlike the righteous man who's planted by a stream of water because of the way they live in accordance with the word of God, the, the, the wicked who are not living in accordance with the word of God, their life is being blown away. They're not firmly planted. It's, it's like worthless. It's like a byproduct. And the results of them is that they're not firmly planted. So it's a sharp contrast to the blessed man. And the outcome of this person, of course, is picked up in verse 5 and 6. The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Notice in the end here that we have a picture of judgment. And God's standing there with the righteous and the wicked in the same sort of camp. And we are not in the same camp. They're standing there. They're both going to stand before God in the judgment. But we have a different response of God in the judgment. We have here the, uh, the righteous being known by the way of the Lord. Right? He sees them and he, he knows them. And it's all due to their obedience to the word of God. That's how come he knows them. But then on the other side, we have these people who are sadly judged. And we see that the result of their lives is to, eventually is to be perished, just to perish, which is a reference in verse 6 to spiritual death. So that's the outcome of living an unrighteous life. Here's what I don't want you to miss, because again, some people might, I don't think you will, but some people could take this the wrong way. They think, well, if the wicked are like chaff and they're going to stand in the judgment and they're going to perish and so on, that must mean that God doesn't love them. 
Well, of course not. See, God loves every single one of those people. The cross was for every single one of those wicked people. You and I, before, the cross, before giving our lives to Jesus Christ, were in the camp of the wicked. So don't start thinking it's an us versus them game. It's not. You were once wicked. I was once wicked in the definition we've used today. And now the cross has given us the, the title of righteous. And we know from Scripture that says that God wants none to perish, but all to come to repentance. That's the heart of God as a loving God. So don't get locked into the us versus them game. The reality is, is that we're only righteous because of the work Christ has done for us on our behalf. So let's dive in now to some lessons to finish off today. And I've got six lessons, and they're titled, they're all titled, what the... Who a, what a blessed person is, right? What is it to be blessed? All right? So this is a repeat of everything we learned today. All right. Blessed people do not entertain counsel from unbelievers. Verse 1a. Not that you can't have unbelieving friends. I'm not saying that but you don't walk in the council. In other words, walk describes a way of life, right? So when their unbelieving friends give you counsel, it's contrary to God's way, you don't walk in that council. You don't live out the counsel that they have given to you. The fastest way of preventing that is to not, is to not sit in, in their council, right? If they start trying to tell you stuff, you can, you can move on and, and, or even right away just defend God's position and give a rebuttal but you don't entertain it and listen to it and consider it as something you want to follow. So blessed people do not entertain the counsel of unbelievers. Second lesson, blessed people do not behave like unbelievers. If you want to be blessed, you don't sit, stand in the path of sinners. You don't stand in the path of sinners. In other words, you don't identify with them like the guy standing outside smoking that cigarette, right? And you don't uh, want to sort of be associated with that way of life. So we don't take our stand with unbelievers in the, way they, in the way they behave. Remember John, book of John says, If you love me, you'll obey my commands. Third, blessed people have no sense of belonging with unbelievers. No sense of belonging with unbelievers. That's the, that's the they don't sin, sit in the seat of scoffers. Again, we're not saying you don't have non-Christian friends. We're saying that when you're amongst them, you don't feel like you belong with them. And the idea behind this is like, who's, who's influencing who? And what is your purpose in that relationship? Those are the questions you want to ask in those, in those, uh, with those friends. Lesson four. Blessed people find the word of God enjoyable. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. We find the word of God enjoyable. I'm not saying again, every time that you study the Word, it's going to be amazing, and you're going to love it, and you're going to walk away with this like epiphany. It's a pattern. It's a pattern. It's a pattern that people who, who are blessed love the Scriptures and the things the Scriptures teach. Lesson five. Blessed people meditate on the Word of God. And we know that what meditation means now. It's not some emptying yourself and emptying your mind. It's to, it's to focus... You let the Word of God speak to you, and then you think through and speak to yourself about the implications and applications of those words and how they're to impact your life. So it's thoughtful deliberation. And finally, 
Blessed people will be prosperous if they obey the word of God. Right? The reason why whatever he does prospers in verse 3 is because he's meditating on the law of the Lord and he's delighting in the law of the Lord. That is why he's prospering. And we have lots of examples of that in our own lives uh, of how this has occurred for us. So the next time Dan Schroeder comes up to me and says, Andrew, how has the word, word of God blessed you today? <laughs> I'm going to go right to Psalm 1 and go, what things have I not done, according to verses 1 to 2, to allow for blessings? And what things, how has my life in the scriptures been lately, in terms of the things God's been teaching me? And that will give me a platform to speak to Schroeder next time he asks you that question. Right? So if someone ever, yeah, also too, like when, when it comes to blessing, it's a great question. Like if you're wondering in your prayer lives, praying for someone to be blessed, encourage them. Encourage them with who their friends are. What's the purpose of those relationships? Ask them what their, their time in the Word of God looks like, what they're learning from it, and so on and so forth. When you're praying for blessings in your own life, funnel your thought processes through these questions as well. And, and I can guarantee you, I can guarantee you that the Lord will bless you if you follow these ways. It's an absolute promise for Psalm chapter 1. Even when you sneeze.